going to ask everybody if you guys can make your way uh, closer to the front, uh, as close as you can. I just want to make sure you guys can see uh, the screens up here that Brother James, uh, the presentation he had done. Hermano James, se llevó tiempo poner esta presentación de la Navidad. So, lo queremos dar un chance aquí para que podamos todos recibir la información que puso. Amén. This is an opportunity, brothers and sisters, for us as a church uh, to keep on learning. Amen. Um, I think that's what's powerful about it. Like I mentioned uh, many times before, I didn't want to believe something that my parents believed without knowing for myself the information. I had told myself a long time ago, I just didn't want to believe because there's a lot of people that believe that way. They'll say that, you know, well, I'm Catholic because my generational Catholics or I'm this from generational stuff, whatever it is. And I wanted to make sure that I, I understood the word uh, for how it was read. And so, and the same thing with, all, with many customs and many traditions. So what we're going to be studying, uh, this is kind of a unique thing that we're going to be doing, but um, it's going to be a blessing, I believe. Uh, and there's an opportunity for us to to testify things and talk about stuff. I will say this. I will say this. That for many years, there, there was times that um, uh, I, I, I sensed that members struggled with, with these type of things. And, uh, and, and again, we've talked, about, we've talked about that before. It's because it seems so innocent. It does. It really is an innocent thing. Right. It's, it feels like it's a good thing. And there's a lot of other things that seem very innocent. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, us understanding and God illuminating the importance of uh, not judging by what we think is right and wrong, but what, what the word of God says. Hermanos, por muchos años, uh, yo sé que es algo que ha sufrido la iglesia y, y personas, pero hay muchas cosas que sufren la iglesia en entender y creer porque... Hay cosas que se miran bien inocente. ¿Qué, qué, 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 ¿Qué chiste tiene esto? Estamos haciendo algo bueno. Ta, pero no está agradando a Dios. Y, o ta, no está como dicen la, las Escrituras. So nosotros queremos uh, meternos en las Escrituras. También historia. Lo que me gustó la primera vez que habló el hermano James. Va a hablar de muchas, muchas de estas cosas. Es que se metió en la historia. Y no, no era tanto de opinión, era opiniones de años, lo que pasó. Uh, what I liked about the first time Brother James had done this is that he didn't only get it, he didn't get into opinions, he got into the word, but he also got into history and how history represented a lot of these things and what was found in history. So we're going to pray um, that God um, uh, has victory uh, in this presentation and, uh, and what God's given Brother James and that God has victory in our hearts. Amen. Le voy a pedir a todos que vengan para la frente, el frente. El frente. Everybody, if you guys, the ones that can, just because, you know, Brother James spent a little bit of time uh, preparing stuff, and we want everybody to be able to see it. Amen? We want to get strong, stronger in these things, brothers and sisters. As a church, we want to get stronger in these things. Why? Because... Um, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things that come up, and not only in what we're going to be going over, but other things that we want to start preparing. Amen? How many of you would like more of these things, like in a lot of stuff that, that could help? Amen? 
So we want to start talking about these things and going over this stuff. So praise the Lord for that. So why don't we pray? And I'm going to pass it to Brother James. I'm going to ask, I asked Brother Joe if he can translate. Le pedí al hermano Joe si puede decir muchas las cosas que va a decir el hermano James en español o las cosas que quiere James que decirlo en español. But why don't we pray? Lord Jesus, we come before you, Father. We're asking your presence. Lead this conversation, Lord. Lead what you've given Brother James, Lord. And I know uh, you've honored us, Lord, with wisdom. And you've always asked us, Lord, just to follow you, Lord, and follow um, the path that you have uh, established before us, Father. I'm asking right now that we just keep an open mind, Lord, and we really take things into not what we uh, deem as innocent, Father, but what you have called uh, righteous, Lord. And I ask, Father, that you just... uh, Clarify things and just uh, bring things to light, Father, and that we're all open here to learn, Lord, and just be uh, willing to be guided by you, Jesus. We're so grateful for your love, Father. Uh, We're asking, Lord, that this uh, be a blessing to all those that receive it, Father, and we just continue to uh, just be guided by you in everything, Father. Bless our brother James and his family, Father, and uh, we ask that you're honored in this, and we ask this all in your precious and holy name, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. God bless everyone. I'm going to ask Brother James to pass on up. Y'all may be seated. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. It's been quite some time. We were in the other little church, maybe 2000, 2000, early 2001, I think is what it was. Praise the Lord. And God bless Pastor for allow me to do this. I'm thankful and I'm grateful. And it's a trip through time. It's a trip through history. And it, even this time, going through it again, you know, you learn things and you see things. And I'll start off with a little preface. Uh, how many are familiar with what the summer solstice is? The summer solstice is the longest day in the summer. It's in the summertime. It's when you have the most daylight. We know that in the summertime, it stays dark here in Texas sometimes till 9 o'clock and past. And the winter solstice is just the opposite. It's the shortest day of the year. It's the, we know right now that our days have gotten shorter, that it's dark now a lot sooner. And it uh, feels like the day goes by just like that. But the winter solstice was a short day. And a lot of people back then didn't understand those things. They were wondering if the sun was going to come back. Was the, was the sun, did we have to do things to make the sun come back? A lot of them had gotten away from the things of God and were into all kinds of other things. And they would get into rituals and they would get into different things when the days started getting longer again because they wanted the sun to come back. But this is just a little preface. And uh, I'm going to ask Brother Anthony to go ahead and and start the presentation with just the title screen. And I'm going to read a little bit here. How many is familiar with the word Baal? You remember, remember Baal from the Bible and how much trouble Israel got in with it with Baal? How many times they were got in trouble? Brother Anthony, if you go to the second screen, the second slide... That orange dot over there is a place called Baalbek. It is an ancient, ancient, ancient city. It has been there for a very long time. If you look down a little bit farther, you can see where Damascus is. Damascus is a road 
Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was going to Damascus. Jerusalem is over here. Jerusalem is right down there. So you can see that it's not much of a distance between Jerusalem and Baalbek. And Baalbek has a long and sordid history. Uh, Baalbek was there when the Greeks got there. When Alexander the Great came and conquered the Persians, Baalbek was already there. Baalbek was there when the Romans got there. It was already, the Greeks had built some temples on it, but it goes back to the Phoenicians. And, and a lot of times we, we think, uh, well, the Romans were around in Jesus' time, but the Romans had been around 750 years before the crucifixion, crucifixion of Christ. Rome had been an empire, a nation, a republic, 750 years before Christ was born and crucified. And so Rome is an old republic at, at the time, and some of its power is waning. It's been divided. It's been reestablished, and it's been divided. But what I want to go into now, I just want you to understand this a little bit of history on the area, the times that we're talking about, and some of the... Uh, some of the uh, foundation, if you will, of the Roman Empire, of Baal worship, of the city of Baalbek, it was named that. They didn't name it that. It was already named that. They just passed that name down. That's how they knew it as. So Baal, the name appropriated to the principal male god of the Phoenicians. It is found in several places in the plural, Baalim. Baal is identified with Molech, and it was known to the Israelites as Baal Peor, was worshipped till the time of Samuel, and was afterwards the religion of the ten tribes in the time of Ahab. How many of you remember Molech? You remember Molech in the Bible? It's one of the foreign gods that they sacrificed their children to. So now you're kind of getting, this is very old, and it was very ugly. And, and let me continue here. And how many of you remember Ahab? You remember the story of Ahab? The story of Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal? So you know how, you can understand how thick this was. And this was, this was actually uh, very entrenched in that area. And it was one of the reasons that the Lord asked them, hey, you know, you, know, you got to take all this stuff out of here. You got to cleanse this land. This land is polluted, and it has been polluted for years. When he asked the Israelites to go into Canaan, when he asked them to take all of them, all of them out, everything out. Baal worship prevailed also for a time in the kingdom of Judah, till finally put to an end by the severe discipline of the captivity. The priests of Baal were in great numbers and of various classes. The sun god, under the general title of Baal or Lord, with a little l, was the chief object of worship of the Canaanites. Each locality had its special Baal, and the various local Baals were summed up under the name of Baalim. And this is an excerpt from the online Bible. And I'll ask uh, Brother Anthony to go to the next slide. So we know where Baalbek is. This is the foundation of the temple that the Romans built upon. This is a this is a uh, this is an ancient ruined temple in Baalbek. This is what they call Cyclopean masonry, Cyclopean architecture, because these stones 
They believe these stones on this foundation, these three big stones, you can see them right there, are 800 tons apiece. They are humongous. And there's no, there's no uh, grout, there's no uh, mason work in between them. There's nothing in between these bricks. They're cut perfect. They're set on top of each other, and they cannot understand how in the world they lifted these 800-ton blocks up. And these are some of the smaller ones that are in that area. There's 1,000 tons, 1,200 tons, and 1,600-ton blocks. So this is called Cyclopean architecture. And the, you can see where the little rocks are, where other civilizations came in and built on top of these foundations. And I want to read a little bit. Cyclopean, name often applied to the primitive method of prehistoric masonry construction found throughout Greece, Italy, and the Middle East. The term is derived from the Cyclops, the mythical beings who were supposed to have built walls in this manner. The Cyclopean techniques involves the use of huge, irregular boulders carefully lifted together without the use of mortar, thereby creating a massive wall with an uneven face. Okay, what, what fascinates most people are the ruins on top of which the Roman temples were built, which it's, with its supposed 5,000 5, years of history, Baalbek has some of the largest, biggest, and hef, heaviest monoliths ever discovered. The site was unanimously acknowledged as an important holy place to the extent that even the Romans, upon conquering the area, erected a temple to the god Baal, a Jupiter hybrid between the Canaanite god Baal and their own god Jupiter. So they just came into this area. They knew about the city of Baalbek. They had heard about the city of Baalbek. You couldn't, you couldn't help but notice because of the, the ancient ruins there. And they came in and said, yeah, we know who Baal is. We have a God that's almost like that. We call him Jupiter. So we're going to build a temple here in reverence of this, what they considered a holy place, which was an actually a uh, pagan place. I asked Brother Anthony to go to the next uh, slide. So these, these were things that were already established before the Romans got there. These were things that were already established before the Greeks got there. There's 75 people on this stone, and yes, I counted them. This one weighs 1,000 tons. There's two more that are bigger. One of them weighs 1,200 tons, and the other one is 1,600 tons. So you can kind of get an idea of the massive architecture that we're talking about for this foundation of this city of Baalbek. I'm kind of getting carried away. I don't know if I need to stop for the translation or not, but, but my, my point is this place has been here for a very long time. This foundation was laid at a time period when that architecture, that understanding, that craftsmanship was lost, and the Romans came and built on top of it. So the Romans conquered it, they came and they built their temples. The Greece had conquered it when they conquered Persia. They built their temples on top of it. And I'm going to keep reading here. Let's see. According to the book of Judges, the Israelites during the second millennium B.C. or early, earlier gradually subjugated the Canaanite cities. By the end of the reign of Solomon, king of Israel, the Canaanites had virtually been assimilated into the Hebrew people, among whom they appeared to have exerted a reactionary religious influence. 
The Canaanite religion itself was based on the worship of the divinities of Baal and Ashtoreth. Biblical scholars, the, this is an expert, uh, excerpt also from the Funk and Wagnalls. So, the reason I'm laying down this, this foundation is because in Rome, on December 25th, which is close to the winter solstice, the Romans celebrated a holiday called the Saturnalia, which was related to their god Saturn. Saturn was the god, was the father of Jupiter in their pantheon. So the temple that they built at Belbec was the temple to Jupiter. So during this time, they were celebrating, uh, they were celebrating the winter solstice. They were celebrating their uh, gods, Jupiter, his father, Saturn, which was an agricultural god because all of the agricultural things had already taken place. October had come. The harvests were all in. All the animals had been slotted, slaughtered. Everybody had meat, and everybody had, had uh, alcohol that had been fermented over the years. So now they felt like, okay, all the work for getting the food and everything together is uh, done. Now it's time to party a little bit. Now we're going to worship our pagan gods with all of our rituals and customs and everything that came along with that. And we're going to ask the sun god to bring the sun back so the days start getting longer. The most important Phoenician contribution. Now, the Phoenicians are people that were there before the Canaanites. So we're going back in a little bit farther back in time so you can kind of get a better idea of where, how all these things came down to pass. And we'll get into Christmas and we'll find out how all of this is related to Christmas. The most important Phoenician contributions to civilization was the alphabet. Purple dye called Tyrian purple and the invention of glass are also ascribed to the Phoenicians. Their industries, particularly the manufacture of textiles and dyes, metalworking and glassworking, were notable in the ancient world. And the raids of the Hittites against the Egyptian territory gave the Phoenician cities an opportunity to revolt. And by 1100 BC, they were independent of Egypt. A nation of traders with self-rule. The Phoenicians became the most notable traders and sailors of the ancient world. The fleets off the coast cities traveled throughout the Mediterranean and even to the Atlantic Ocean. And other nations competed to employ the Phoenician ships and crews in their navies. In connection with their maritime trade, the city kingdoms founded many colonies, notably Utica and Carthage in North Africa, on the island of Rhodes and Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea, and Tarshish in southern Spain. How many remembers Tarshish? That's where Joah wanted, or Jonah wanted to run away to, right? The Phoenicians gradually lost their separate identity as they were absorbed into the Greco-Macedonian Empire. These cities became Hellenized, and in A.D. 64, even the name of Phoenicia disappeared. When the territory was made part of the Roman providence, Phoenician cities were famous for their pantheistic religion. Many godded religions, pantheistic religion. Each city had its special deity, usually known as a Baal, or Lord, with a little L. And in all the cities, temples was the center of, center of civil and social life. 
excerpt from the Funk and Wagnalls Encyclopedia. So this is an ancient civilization that has been around for a long time. They worshipped Baal for a very long time. They invented glass. They had uh, purple dyes. They did textiles and many things. They were absorbed. When Alexander the Great came through there, he changed everything. He, he, he took out the Persians, what was left of the Babylonian Empire, what was left of the Persian Medes Empire, and he spread the Greek philosophy, religions, and culture throughout the Middle East. He went all the way to India, over to India, before he finally stopped and turned around. So these people were absorbed into the cultures, and that was one thing that God asked the Israelites not to do. He told them, do not marry these people. Don't give your daughters to these people. Don't give your sons to these people. You are to go in here and clean this place out thoroughly which was not done. And they wind up absorbing these people into their culture. And they wind up absorbing some of their beliefs and some of their traits and some of, some of their other things into their cultural. And who knows whether or not at that time, if they knew where these things actually come. We're talking centuries, you know, centuries since the Greco-Roman Empire, centuries since Babylon, Macedonia, Persian, and these things have just come constantly down through the centuries, being absorbed by the next culture, celebrated as something else by the next culture. And it gets to a point where you don't even know anymore where this actually came from. Where does it? Why? Okay. Christmas, the birth of Jesus is what it's labeled as, right? What does a Christmas tree have to do with that? What, I mean, think about that for a minute. What does bringing a Christmas tree into the house have to do with the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, I don't know. That's what my mom and dad did. And that's, how, that's what we do. And when you, when you go back and you look at these things, okay, what does Christmas tree have to do with it? Well, the Christmas tree was another pagan ritual that came from Norway, that came from the, through the Germans, that was part of one of their winter solstice celebrations. And it was all absorbed and, and brought into this culture at that point in time. And that's how it was celebrated at that time. And without looking at these things and understanding where they come from, you, you really get caught up in things that you don't. I, me, I didn't know. I never even thought about it, you know. That's just the way my mom and dad believed. That's the way their mom and dad believed. And that's the way that, you know, you're expected to teach your kids you talk about something, tell somebody you don't celebrate Christmas and see what, see what happens. Well, that's un-American. Well, what do you mean it's un-American? You know, I don't, I don't talk about you because you want to bring a tree into your house or you want to celebrate. You know, that's your custom. I'm not trying to take that away from you. It's just not something that I take part in, you know. But it, you're looked upon, you're frowned upon as somebody that's not, that's abnormal, so to speak. Anyway. Let's get back into it here. Belbek, ancient Heliopolis, a town in East Lebanon between the Litany and Nasi rivers. The name, which means the city of Baal, is derived from the early association of the town with the worship of Baal, a local sun deity whom the ancient Greeks identified with their sun god, Helios. The Greeks and Roman called the town Heliopolis, city of the sun. Once a splendid city, it is now famous for the imposing ruins of ancient temples. Abundance evidence indicates that Baalbek is very ancient. 
Portions of the masonry being attributed to the Phoenicians' origin, the Roman Emperor Augustus made the city a Roman colony. And this is an excerpt from the Funkin Wagnalls Encyclopedia. So we can see here that they already knew that this thing had been here for a long time. The Greeks just absorbed it, call it Heliopolis, City of the Sun. The Romans just absorbed it when they came, called it the same thing, but they just put different names on their, on their gods. Zeus was the, was the head god of the Greek pantheon, and I believe Saturn or Jupiter is the head god of the Roman pantheon. Sun worship, a religious devotion paid to the sun either as a deity or as the symbol of a deity. The sun was also a Hindu deity, regarded as malficient by the Dravidians of southern India and as benevolent, benevolent by the Monday of the central parts. The Babylonians were sun worshippers in ancient Persia, and sun was an integral part of the elaborate cult of Mithras. Now, here we go. This is tying in an ancient Babylonian religion of sun worship with a god called Mithra. Okay, we already understand that the Greeks and the Romans inherited the city of Baalbek, which goes back ancient times. And, and we knew that this was a worship of, of uh, that was prior to the Romans and the Greeks. But the cult of Mithras was... A army, which is what the army of Rome, the soldiers themselves, he was a god of war. He was a god of the sun, but he was a god of war. And the armies are the ones that had, uh, that carried this cult of Mithras with them. And this cult came from Babylon, from Babylon, right after the destruction of Nimrod and the Tower of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. This comes back from that far. In ancient Greece, the deities of the sun were Heliopolis and Apollo. The worship of Helios was widespread. Temples were built in Corinth, Argos, and Chosen, which is no longer in existence, and many other cities, but the principal seat was on the island of Rhodes. Sun worship persisted in Europe even after the introduction of Christianity, as is evidenced by its disguised survival in such traditional Christi Christian practices as the Easter bonfire and the Yule log on Christmas. Excerpt from the Funkin' Wagner's Encyclopedia. Hold up a minute here. Sun worship persisted in Europe even after the introduction of Christianity, as is evidenced by its disguised survival in such traditional Christian practices as the Easter bonfire and the Yule log on Christmas. Even, the, even these guys see it, you know. This is from the Funkin' Wagnall Encyclopedia. And they're saying, yeah, well, some worship's still alive because it's part of the Christian tradition of Easter and, and the Yule Log. Mithraism, one of the major religions of the Roman Empire, the cult of Mithra. After the conquest of Assyria in the 7th century B.C. and of Babylonia in the 6th century B.C., Mithra became the god of the sun which was worshipped in his name. The Greeks of Asia Minor, by identifying Mithra with Helios, the Greek god of the sun, helped to spread the cult. And during the early empire, it spread rapidly throughout Italy and the Roman provinces. It was a rival to Christianity in the Roman world. Mithraism was similar to Christianity in many respects. For example, in the ideals of humility and brotherly love, baptism, the rite of communion, the use of holy water, the adoration of the shepherds of Mithra's birth, 
the adoption of Sundays and December 25th, Mithra's birthday as holy days. So th- see, this is, this is where we're, we're, it's really coming from. This is an ancient religion from a long time ago that had come down through the centuries that was already established as the birth of Mithra on December 25th. And it was already had a lot of the customs of Christianity, and we'll get how Christianity uh, came into absorbing it. But I'm going to ask Brother Anthony to go ahead to the next slide. I know it's a lot to try to absorb, but what we're trying to get through here is to understand that uh, this has been repackaged, relabeled, remarketed, and sold to us as a brand new, new, and improved product. But guess what? It's not. And it's very old, and it's very ancient. And we know what happened to the civilizations that worship this in the area of Israel at these times. Praise the Lord. This is, uh, this is Bacchus. He's actually like a god of drunkenness and of alcohol and wine, which was a big part of this celebration at that time because he was related to the agricultural thing. And his, his uh, we, we can't even get into the type of celebrations that took place during that festival. But he's, he is related to a lot of these customs and things that are wrapped up in Christmas and things of this nature come from this. The Saturnalia was an enduring Roman festival dedicated to the agricultural sun god Saturn, which was held between the 17th and 23rd of December. Each year during the winter solstice originating from archaic agricultural rituals, the Roman festivities came to include a general round of gift-giving, merrymaking, and role reversals so that it became one of the most popular celebrations in the calendar and certainly the jolliest time of year. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that. The jolliest. The similarities of some of its features and the timing pushed later into December over time suggest a strong influence on the Christian celebration of Christmas. Saturnalia, Encyclopedia Britannica. One of the best-known festivals of ancient Rome was the Saturnalia, a winter festival celebrated on December 17th through the 23rd. Because it was a time of wild merrymaking and domestic celebrations, businesses, schools, and law courts were closed so that the public could feast, dance, gamble, and generally enjoy itself to the fullest. December 25th was the birthday of Mithra, a day devoted to the invincible sun. We're talking about the sun in the sky, right? Because at this time, the days started getting longer. So they're getting happy. Okay, well, great. The sun's coming back. So they're celebrating the, God, the birthday of the god Mithra in the Saturnalias before Christmas. This is before Christmas. A day devoted to the invincible sun, as well as the day after the Saturnalia, was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church as Christmas, the nativity of Christ. This is common in festivals in which the social order is temporarily suspended or reversed as in the ancient Roman Saturnalia and the carnival celebrated in many Roman Catholic countries. Okay. Now what, we're gonna, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go into Mithra real quick because what you find out is Mithra, which is an ancient Babylonian god, has be- now become the god of Saturn, which is now the Roman god, right? So they just come down through the ages 
just by changing your names, but it's the same celebration. It's the same type of atmosphere, the jolliest time of year. Everybody's happy. Everybody's giving gifts. Everybody's happy that the days are starting to get longer and the sun God, this is the birth of the sun God, which is coming back. Okay, Mithra, also spelled Mithras. Mitra, the first written mention of Vedic Mitra dates to 1400 B.C., 1400 years before Christ. His worship spread to Persia and after the defeat of the Persians by Alexander the Great throughout the Hellenic world. In the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D., the cult of Mithra carried and supported by the soldiers of the Roman Empire was the chief rival to the newly developing religion of Christianity. The Roman emperors Commodus and Julian were initiates of Mithraism, and in 307, Diocletian consecrated a temple on the Danube River to Mithra, protector of the empire. The worship of Mithra, known as Mithras in the Roman Empire during the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD, this deity was honored as the patron of loyalty to the emperor. After the acceptance of Christianity by the Emperor Constantine in the early 4th century, Mithra was also the god of the sun, of the shining light that beholds everything and hence was invoked in oaths. The Greeks and Romans considered Mithra as a sun god. He was the god of mutual obligation between the king and his warriors and hence a god of war. I'm going to ask Anthony to go to the next slide. So we can see here how Mithra survived throughout the centuries. It was worshipped by the Greek Empire. It was worshipped by the Roman Empire. And now Mithra, this ancient, ancient deity from Babylon, is carried on by the Roman soldiers. He's the god of war, and it's the god of the Roman soldiers. And I don't know if you're very familiar with the Roman Empire, but the Roman army was a magnificent machine, and it conquered hundreds and hundreds of civilizations over the 12 to 1400 years that Rome was an empire. Okay, the religious background of Constantine. This is a sculpture of the emperor Constantine. Scholars continue to debate and examine the rationale for Constantine's conversion to Christianity. One of the elements involved the empire in 300 CE, Christianity had grown steadily since the first century and 300. There are estimates that out of a total population of 60 million, 3 million were Christians. Jews still numbered 11. Some contend that Constantine was smart enough to foresee the winds of change. However, Constantine may perhaps have pre been pre-programmed for some of his beliefs. During the reign of Emperor Aurelian, the cult of Sol Invictus, the invincible unconquered sun, remember this is Mithra, the cult of Mithra, was promoted as his family cult. This is this man's family's religion, is the cult of Mithra. He is a general in a Roman army, and his father was a general and one of the second Caesars of the Roman Empire. This cult also embodied the concepts of Jupiter, Apollo, and Helios. Sol Invictus merged with another popular military cult, that of Mithras. At the same time, Aurelian also reorganized the imperial finances. But what I wanted to get down to, his ideas may have summarized, been summarized as this. One God, one empire. Constantine 
uh, Constantius and his son Constantine were both members of the cult of Sol Invictus. Now you have to understand, Rome had been around for a long time. 750 years, it had an east side now and it had a west side now. When, when uh, Constantine came in, he, he, had to he had to defeat several other uh, Roman Caesars generals of the other empire to consolidate the empire. And that was his mindset, to consolidate the empire. Now, they say, well, you know, Constantine, he's the father of Christianity. He legalized, he legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. Yes, he did. He also murdered his wife and his first son because he did not want them having an opportunity to get control of the throne. And those aren't the only two that he took out. He was, if you really read about and understand the history of Constantine, he was all about power. He was all about reconsolidating the Roman Empire and being the head of that Roman Empire, no matter what it took or who he had to take out to do it. And he understood. He, it says there he was smart enough to understand and to realize. Number one, he was a Roman army general. Number two, his army uh, worshipped the cult of Mithra. You know, and number three, he had to have that army to do what it was he intended to do, which is to reconquer Rome and consolidate it as an empire. And they asked, was, was he, so many people are, are so flummoxed on this, was he actually a Christian? Well, you'll know them by the fruits. Many books on Constantine continue to debate Constantine's commitment as a Christian. Criticism of Constantine's conversion involves the following elements. The Edict of Milan legalized Christians but left all the native cults in place. The Arch of Constantine, erected in 315 CE near the Colosseum, lacks Christian symbols and contains sculptures of offerings to Apollo, Diana, and Hercules. Constantine issued coins with himself in the figure of Sol Invictus and Helios. Constantine was not baptized as a Christian until he was on his deathbed. The concept of the creed from the Latin credo, I believe, was a Christian innovation with multiple native cults. There was no central authority that dictated what all should believe. The Nicene Creed formalized one system of one belief that was promoted through the power of the emperor. As such, any dissent was not only heresy, but also treason. The Council of Nicaea also set the date for the empire-wide celebration of Easter. Some communities had insisted on following the gospel of tradition of observance during the Jewish Passover. So, Constantine reconsolidated the Roman Empire. He killed people. Uh, he had people that, that came over to his side that helped him betray people on the other side and then that he wind up killing them and so he could consolidate this power and he did consolidate this power. As soon as his father died, the Roman legion lifted him up on their shoulders and proclaimed him as emperor of Rome and he, and he did that. He did consolidate Rome. He, he took over the empire. He legalized Christianity but there was a lot of other things in this he established the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, let's, let's go from there. Brother Anthony, if you'll go to the next slide. So now we understand that the Roman army is moving on the cult of Mithra, 
and that Constantine has taken over the empire. How many of you are familiar with the Nicene Council? That's the council of the Catholic Church in like 330-something, and uh, that's where they got all the books of the Bible and put them all together and say all these books are canonized. These are official canonized books of the Bible. That's how all the books of the Bible got in there is because the Catholics at the Nicene Council came together and said, okay, are these actually books that belong in the Bible? And that's how that became. So Constantine, after mediating the Donatist Schism, the next major challenge came in 325 CE. And what had happened here is he had broken, uh, civil war had broken out in several cities, and Constantine brought the bishops together at the city of Nicaea to resolve the issue. The Council of Nicaea resulted in the Christian doctrine known as the Trinity, which articulated the relationship between God and Christ. The council voted to claim that Christ was of the identical essence of God, present creation and manifest incarnated on earth as Jesus of Nazareth. Until Christ returned, the now Christian emperor stands in for Christ and so carries the identical power of God on earth as he rules. It was after this council that Christian emperors began to be portrayed with halos over their head and the trappings of divine worship. Constantine expanded the ideas of Aurelian in that he could now enforce one God, one empire, one church, and he had now become divine, godlike, on earth by establishing the church and by establishing these things. Anything else was treason, was heresy, punishable by, by death. And the Catholic Church at that time, which I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but now the Pope has taken that title of being the one that stands in for God until Christ returns. But this was at first anointed on the Christian or Roman emperors. I'm not, I, I don't even know why they call them Christian, but the Roman emperors that had a Christian faith or believed in a Christian faith, let me put it that way. Despite the skeptics, there is no doubt Constantine combining of church and state contributed to the further growth of Christianity and the evolution of its theology. Constantinople became the seat of the Byzantine Empire, which ruled throughout the Middle East until the conquer of Islam in 1453. 1453 years after Christ was crucified is when that Roman empire finally fell almost 1500 years after this okay let's learn a little more about uh constantine in 293 his father was raised to the rank of caesar or deputy emperor as constantius chlorus and was sent to serve under augustus maximilian in the west in 289 constantinius this is his father had separated from helena which was his wife, in order to marry a stepdaughter of Maximum. And Constantine was brought up in the Eastern Empire at the court of the senior emperor Diocletian at Nicomedia. Diocletian was very vicious emperor. He, he was one of them that had a terrible persecution against the Christians. Christianity he encountered in court circles as well as in the cities of the East from 303 during the great persecution of the Christians that began at the court of Diocletian at Nicomedia and was enforced with particular intensity in the eastern parts of the empire. 
Christianity was a major issue of public policy. It is even possible that members of Constantine's family were Christians. Constantinius, his father, requested his son's presence from Galerius. So he was raised in the military families. He was moved from the Eastern Empire to the Western Empire. He saw the persecutions of the Christians. He may have had relatives that were, that were Christians in his family. He was popular, and this came from, the, uh, from modern York, which is, a, uh, which is like an encyclopedia. He was popular with the troops who immediately acclaimed and proclaimed him emperor when his father, Constantius, died. Over the next 20 years, however, Constantine had to fight his rivals for the throne, and he did not finally establish himself as sole ruler until 324. Constantine then threw himself into a complex series of civil wars in which Maxentius... Okay, and this just goes in to talk about how this man operated and, and finally consolidated these two empires by taking sons and fathers and killing them by using, betraying them to get into the other eastern half of the empire and consolidate all of this power until the complete Roman empire was his once again. I'll ask Brother Anthony to go to the next slide. I know it's a lot to sift to, but you get to understand the, the uh, political climate and the atmosphere at the time when Christmas was theoretically established as a holiday for the Christians. Several of the traditions today strongly associated with Christmas have a very long history indeed, even predating the Christmas celebration of its, itself. Early Christianity sought to distance itself from pagan practices, and so later Roman emperors closed down ancient sacred sites prohibited rituals, and ended sporting games that had once honored pagan gods. However, changing the habits of the ordinary people was a different matter. The pagan festival of the Saturnalia had been particularly popular, and its traditions that had endured for a millennium were in many cases simply transferred into the new festival of Christmas. So... I'm not going to go on to uh, talk more about Constantine, how he became uh, convinced that he saw a vision that helped him consolidate the empire before a big war that he had. Uh, and he, even though it was a son, one of his son, Sol Invictus, signs he attributed to Christianity, but his, you have to understand this man's true intention was to consolidate power and to become the ruler of the empire at that time. Okay? Constantine intervened in ecclesiastical affairs. This is a church. He established the Catholic Church. He established the Catholic Church. He gave them money. He gave them grants. He built temples. He built the temple of Peter in the Vatican, which the Roman Catholic Church is in now. Constantine intervened in ecclesiastical affairs to achieve unity. He presided over the first ecumenical council of the church at Nicaea in 325. In addition, Constantine built churches in the Holy Land where his mother Helena, also a Christian, 
it says that she found the true cross on which Jesus was crucified. Evaluation. Constantine unified a tottering empire, reorganized the Roman state, and set the stage for the final victory of Christianity at the end of the 4th century. His conversion was a gradual process. At first, he probably associated Christ with the victorious son, God. By the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325, however, he is said to have been a Christian, but still tolerated paganism among his subjects. Constantine strengthened the Roman Empire and ensured its survival in the East. As the first Roman emperor to rule in the name of Christ, he was a major figure in the foundation of medieval Christian Europe. Constantine had no doubt that to remove error and to propagate the true religion were both his personal duty and a proper use of his imperial position. The Council of Nicaea coincided almost exactly with the celebration of the 20th anniversary of the reign of Constantine, at which returning the compliment. So what happened here is you can't take it away from the man. He consolidated the Roman Empire. He consolidated power. He built the Roman Catholic Church. He built the church temples. And uh, he consolidated the east and west part of the Roman Empire. Okay? He, he said that he had converted to Christianity, but his fruits with him killing his wife, his stepmother, and well, during his absence from the east and for reasons that remain obscure, Constantine had his oldest son, the deputy emperor Crispus, and his own wife, Faustus, Crispus's stepmother, slain. It was perhaps in some sense to atone for the family catastrophe of 326 that Constantine's mother, Helena, embarked on a holy pilgrimage. After he did this, she took off. She took off and started looking for things. She started looking for parts of the old church. Because you have to remember, Christianity, Christ had been crucified 300 years prior to this. This is in 300 years later in the Roman Empire. And when his mother saw what he had done to his first wife and his stepson, then uh, she took off on a, on a pilgrimage. But in, in let's see. I'll, I'll skip past that. Constantine's interest in church building was expressed also at Constantinople, particularly in churches of the Holy Wisdom, the original Hagia Sophia, at the end of the apostles, and of the apostles, excuse me, at Rome. The great church of St. Peter was begun in the late 320s and lavishly endowed by Constantine with plate and property. And it goes on to talk about other churches that he built and Constantine received his baptism, putting off the, the imperial purple robe and taking the white robes of a neophyte when he died in 337. And he was buried at Constantinople in the Church of the Apostles. Okay. His public actions and policies, however, were not entirely without ambiguity. The relative inoffense, unconquered son was eliminated just over a decade after the defeat of Maxentius, some of the ambiguities in Constantine's public policies were therefore exacted by the respect due to his established practice. He passed away. He built a bunch of churches. He slowly but surely outlawed the uh, cults of Mithra and Mithraism. He got rid of that stuff, which was what the Roman army believed in and dealt with. And he eliminated all of his... Uh, all of his competition in all places, whether they were families, generals, it didn't matter. And uh, 
For this, let go ahead to the next slide, Anthony. The Nicene Council in 325, they, uh, they awarded him as being divine, God's representative on earth. And at that council in 325, they established December 25th as the birth of Christ. They, they took it from the birth of Mithra, this ancient pagan god, and named it, this is now the birthday of Christ. We'll, con- we'll continue to celebrate the Saturnalia, but now we'll celebrate it as Christianity, and we'll celebrate it as the birth of Christ. According to the Roman Almanac, the Christian festival of Christmas was celebrated in Rome by the year 336. Okay, so now we, we see how 300 years after Christ was crucified, Constantine reconsolidated the Roman Empire. The, he established uh, temples. He built churches. The Catholic Church named him a God on earth as being divine. And they also renamed the birthday of Mithra as the birthday of Jesus Christ and now the celebration of Christmas. And we'll find out where this comes from. A medieval Christmas. And let me read this to you. Christ Mass. From Old English. Christi's Masses. Christ Mass. Christian festivals celebrated on December 25th. That was the original name of it. It was a Mass from the Roman Catholic Church for Christ. It was a Christ Mass. But now it's been compacted as Christmas. During the medieval period from 500, now we're past the Roman Empire. We know how Christmas was established in 325. During the medieval period from 500 to 1500, the celebration went from strength to strength. It was the longest holiday of the year, typically the full 12 days of Christmas. How many of you have heard of the 12 days of Christmas? On the 12th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me, blah, 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 right? Well, guess what? That's where it comes from, right? Okay. From the night of Christmas Eve, December 24th to the 12th day, the 6th of January, people took a much-needed rest, largely thanks to the lull in agricultural activity in midwinter. How many of you know that Christmas was outlawed in the United States? Christmas preparations began in the home of the poor as well as the rich. Winter foliage was available and greenery was gathered to decorate the house with garlands. For some reason, my, my, me English, no, I'm having a hard time with my English here, Brother Edgar. Was gathered to decorate the house with garlands. Holly, ivy, and mistletoe had long been admired by the Celts and were, how many of you have heard of the Celtic Druids? Remember the Druids? Do you know the, uh, uh, oh, what's the name of that place? Over in England, the stones that are all, Stonehenge, that was theoretically established by the Celtic droids of that time, were associated with the protection against evil spirits and fertility. That's what the holly, the ivy, and all these things were about, were the protection from evil spirits and fertility. A giant double hoop of mistletoe usually took pride of place in one's living room. The fertility connection explains then why a tradition developed of couples kissing under the mistletoe, picking off a white berry in each peck given. At that time, they didn't bother with that anymore. It was just whoever could get under the mistletoe and get a kiss, right? That's what had become at the time I was a kid. 
Another important feature of a home at Christmas and another link with pagan practices was the Yule log. This prodigious piece of tree trunk was placed in the hearth and kept lit for all 12 days of the holiday. Okay, the next slide, Anthony. It's amazing how all of these things come down through, through the ages. The mistletoe, this comes from back there. The Christmas tree, the Yule dog in America. We, I think we celebrated the Yule log one time when I was a child. It's where you burn this giant log in your fire. And it's supposed to burn the whole 12 days. And it was when we lived up in, in Texas. You don't need a fire. You know, I mean, in the wintertime, but not for 12 days. But... And, and I was little. I don't really remember much of it, but it wasn't something that really caught on here in America. But from what I understand, the European countries still have a lot to do with this celebration. Now, this is in the 1600 Americas, and these are the Puritans. You remember all the, the turkeys that we colored in school, and we were told that the pilgrims brought over, and they got together with the Indians, and they had Thanksgiving, and we colored all the turkeys and did all that stuff. Well, this is this, these guys, okay? Who were the Puritans? Refers to the movement for reform which occurred within the Church of England between the time of Elizabeth and Charles. Elizabeth, the Queen of England, and Charles, the King of England. The Puritans wanted to rid the church of any Catholic residue and build upon the ideas of John Calvin. When Elizabeth died and Charles II dissolved Parliament and any connection between the church and state, he demanded that anyone be killed who did not support the new Anglican church. Hence, religious persecution began for the Puritans, and they left for the New World in 1620 and established the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They suffered persecution in England because they didn't believe in the uh, religious. But you have to understand, at that point in time, 1600, the Catholic Church had been around for 1,300 years, and it was a mess. They went through the, uh, uh, oh, what was that part where they killed everybody, where they had those interrogations, the Roman. You remember that, Mr. Carr? The Roman Catholic Church, uh, what was the name of it? It starts with an I, I think. No, the Crusades is when they went to the Holy Land. This is when they started killing Christians. The Inquisitions. The Inquisition was a monstrous and horrific thing. If you really get into the background and the understanding behind some of that, the Catholic Church invented some new torture devices, and they are beyond understanding. And it, she had already gone through this period of time, and now... It, she was more in control of the European, uh, had, had established herself with the European and the French empires, and these people wanted to get out. This is a time around Martin Luther when he nailed the, the uh, referendum, I forgot the exact name of it, on the Catholic door, when, when they realized the Catholic Church had just gone past this. They were no longer scripture-based church. These people realized that, and they left. They were being persecuted for keeping the word, and they said, you know what? We're going to the new world, and they went to the new world. The next slide, Anthony. Let's see. So when they came to the new world, and uh, let me read it in here, they had actually outlawed Christmas. Let's see, where is it? 
The Pilgrim's second governor, William Bradford, wrote that he tried hard to stomp out pagan mockery uh, of the observance and penalizing any frivolity. The influential Oliver Cromwell preached against the heathen traditions of Christmas carols, decorated trees, and any joyful expression that desecrated that sacred event. In 1659, the General Court of Massachusetts enacted a law making any observance of December 25th, other than a church service, a penal offense. People were fined for hanging decorations. That stern solemnity continued until the 19th century, until the 1800s. The Pilgrims, English separatists that came to America in 1620 were even more orthodox in their Puritan beliefs than Cromwell. As a result, Christmas was not a holiday in early America. From 1659 to 1681, the celebration of Christmas was actually outlawed in Boston. Anyone exhibiting the Christmas spirit was fined. By contrast, in the Jamestown settlement, Captain John Smith reported Christmas was enjoyed by all. After the American Revolution, English customs fell out of favor, including Christmas. In fact, Congress was in session on December 25th in 1789, the first Christmas under America's new constitution. Christmas was declared a federal holiday, wasn't declared a federal holiday until June 26, 1870. So we can see for almost 250 years, they didn't appreciate Christmas in America. They knew exactly what Christmas was. They knew exactly where it came from. They knew exactly what the Catholic Church had become about, and they no, wanted, no longer wanted to be a part of that. And it stayed that way until the royals. Have, have you seen that new reality show, The Royals? It started back in the 1800s when they started printing all the newspapers with the king and the queen in the palace with the Christmas tree and with all the decorations, everything. And then the Americans said, hey, you know what? The English, they aren't all that bad. They drink tea instead of coffee. And, but they're, they're really our cousins. So maybe we ought to celebrate Christmas true, right? So the next leap forward in Christmas was celebrated, came during the reign of Queen Elizabeth and Charles and uh, the Victoria displayed a great nostalgia for the Merry Christmas festivals of the medieval period. Just as many today wistfully romanticize the Christmas of the Victorian period, so in the 19th century, writers like Sir Walter Scott, 1771 to 1832, eulogized on the Christmases of yore. In effect, the holiday had become an exercise in capturing the elusive myth of a past golden age, an exercise which in many ways continues today. The Victorians certainly ensured that much such medieval elements as Christmas morning, church service, feasting, games, gifts, and pantomimes continued to enjoy their status as essential activities of the season. Okay, Brother Anthony, next. So now we see that England's still celebrating, the Catholic Church is still heavy in England, and now it's come all the way over to America. A huge range of gifts was available from the shops that festooned their windows to entice indecisive shoppers. And many sent out catalogs for those that were not able to visit in person rather than being made in the home by mass. Produced toys were now available. Here we go. This is just the beginning of the commercialization, which is what it has become today. 
Miniaturized mechanism made the dolls walk and the trains trundle. Presents were now given primarily on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. The 26th of December because became known as Boxing Day in Britain because this was a day when employers traditionally gave a box of gifts and leftovers to their servants or workers. All of these Victorian uh, Christmas activities were captured, celebrated, celebrated, and preserved for the future generations by writers of the period, and none did so more successfully than Charles Dickens, 1812 to 1870. How many remember that? You know that thing? Do you realize that thing is that old? That's making me feel old now. I was a kid. I remember the Scrooge, you know, Bob Marley, you know, and the Christmas present, the Christmas past, the Christmas future. This comes from all the way back then. This is Father Christmas right here. But what had happened, the writers had kind of got onto this. And Charles Dickinson pulled his career out of a nosedive, said, hey, I'm going to write a Christmas carol here, a Christmas play. So he wrote a Christmas play, and uh, everybody read it, and they loved the, all, of the, all of the things that were detailed in it. Dickens' festive tale, A Christmas Carol, with his story of reformed miser Ebenezer Scrooge, has itself become a staple part of Christmas ever since its publication in 1843. A more efficient postage system and the introduction of the penny black stamp in 1840 meant that correspondence increased and a tradition developed of sending friends and distant family a Christmas card. First introduced in England in 1843, coming in all shapes and sizes, these were lithographed, hand-colored, and often boasted ribbons and lace. There were all kinds of subjects depicted on the cards, but one reoccurring theme was snow. Scenes and a reflection of the string of harsh winters in England through the 1830s and 1840s. White Christmases became much rarer thereafter, but this is what the part of time that they captured. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Remember all that stuff? And can you imagine that this has been repackaged? from a myth, Mithra cult, from an ancient Babylonian cult, from the cult of Molech where they used to sacrifice their children after the harvest to try to bring back the God of the sun because the days were getting shorter and they weren't sure that the sun was going to come back. All the way through time, the God of Jupiter, the God of Saturn, the Saturnalia, the gifts given, comes through Charles Dickinson, comes back. It was outlawed in this country for 250 years. When the Puritans came over, they said, oh, no, you're not bringing that over here. We know what that is. But the reality show of the royals, it finally wind up coming back into America. Finally became, and then once the American industry got a hold of it, it became a packaged, processed, fast food. Here's your Christmas. Thank you very much. We'll take all your money celebration. And it's never had anything to do with Jesus Christ. Never at all. Never was intended to. The only reason the Catholic Church did it because this was the religion of their benefactor, Constantine, and his army, the army of Rome, that conquered, conquered in the name of Sol Invictus. That was, that was their whole deal. And his whole thing was about getting power. 
He established the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church remained true to him. But the Catholic Church had turned over during the years and during those parts of time and became something that was very ugly. Very ugly. It was, it was terrible if you were caught up in that inquisition. If, a, if your family members got caught up in that inquisition. And that's something that uh, I, don't, uh, I don't promote investigating because of the horrors of it. Because it was very, very horrible. They tortured people to death to make them renounce their faith or whatever it was that they believed. I mean, they invented tortures that's beyond understanding. And how can a church, how can someone that is based on the word of God become this monster that she had become at that point in time? And some of these people realized that. And some of these people saw that and said, you know what? I, don't, I think we've gone the wrong way. I think we've gone astray somewhere. You know, remember, remember how Brother Lorenzo was talking about in the Word? Not be established on your own opinion this morning? Also around this time, English author Charles Dickinson created the Chris, classic holiday tale of Christmas Carol. How many remember that other one? It was the night before Christmas when all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. And I don't know the rest of it because I never did learn. But we know, you know, that's another tale that has come down through the ages that had started at this same time around Charles Dickinson time. And this is talking about the Santa Claus. Okay. So let me go ahead. Go ahead, brother. The next slide. Queen Victoria's husband was Albert of Saxe, Coburg, and Gotha, and Prince Consort. And he introduced to Britain the tradition of the Christmas tree, which was popular in his home country. Not the first royal to have a Christmas tree in England, nevertheless, from 1841. Prince Albert began a lasting tradition which soon spread from town squares to living rooms across the country. The idea being spread by popular illustrated magazines that revealed the private festivities of the royal family. Mistletoe remained an important element of decoration, but the tree eventually replaced it as the centerpiece of the home at Christmas. The young fir tree was decorated with candles and small presents, toys, sweets, charms, and candy fruit hung from its bows that were destined to be distributed to the Christmas guests who might have had their name tagged to their gift. So you could trace the Christmas tree back to Druids, back to ancient civilizations that had the ritual of bringing in an evergreen tree because it was one of the few things that was still alive during winter. It was one of the few things that was still green during winter. So they believed it had to have some kind of magic to stay alive during winter. So they cut it down. They brought it into the house. They And, and all of those things, the little balls on it, the tinsel, the wreath, they all come from old ancient pagan practices. The Christmas tree was one of them. They believed that fairies and sprites lived in the evergreen trees during winter, and bringing them in invited the good spirits out and would protect them from the bad spirits. Let's go to the next slide. But I wasn't told that when I was a kid. Where did the tradition of the Christmas tree come from? The tradition of using evergreen bows included holly, mistletoe, and the decoration during winter celebration is ancient. In the Middle East, trees were, brought to, were traditionally cut down brought into the home, and decorated. Evergreens are a natural symbol of hope and a promise of renewed life in the spring during a time when most plants are barren in European climates. 
Today, the Christmas tree is the most famous and widely used legacy of this tradition that predates Christianity. The modern Christmas tree originates in Germany, but the Germans got it from the Romans who got it from the Babylonians and the Egyptians. The following demonstrates what the Babylonians believe about the origin of the Christmas tree. An old Babylonian fable told of an evergreen tree which sprang up out of a dead stump. The old stump symbolizes the dead Nimrod. All the way back to Nimrod, before the Tower of Babel, had come to life again in Tammuz. Let me read that again. The old stump symbolizes the dead Nimrod, the new evergreen tree that symbolized that Nimrod had come back to life again in Tammuz. Among the Druids, the oak was sacred. Among the Egyptian, it was the palm. And in Rome, it was the fir, which is decorated with red berries during the Saturnalia. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Nimrod and Semiramis and Tammuz. That's in the Bible, too, about when God asked, I think it was Ezekiel, to look at the temple and see what the Jews are celebrating. And some of them were bowing to the east and to the sun. And on the other side, they were crying to Tammuz, which was the son of Nimrod. Anyway, I'm not going to get into all that. But it, it come, the Christmas tree comes all the way back from Babylon. The earliest Christmas trees actually originated in Egypt and symbolized the triumph of life over death. The first traditional Christmas tree came from Germany. However, the trees were meant to symbolize the people's hope for the coming spring. As a result, the Christmas tree was not automatically accepted as Christmas symbol in the Christian Christmas as it was thought to be a pagan symbol. You certainly wouldn't know that today, though would you? As Christmas tree has become welcome as a Christmas symbol in all its glory. That's sad. Next slide, brother. Even the people, even the people that write the, the encyclopedias, write the books, they see that this is, this is just an ancient pagan symbol that's been repackaged as Christmas. That's now celebrated as a Christian, uh, as a symbol of Christmas. The history of the Yule log, the Yule log was originally an entire tree that was carefully chosen and brought into the house with great ceremony. The largest end of the log would be placed in the fire hearth while the rest of the tree struck, stuck out into the room. The log would be lit for the, marine, the remains of the previous year's log, which had been carefully stored away and slowly fed into the fire through the 12 days of Christmas. It was considered important that relighting process was carried, about, carried out by someone with clean hands. And of course, most people have central heating now, so it's very difficult to burn a tree. Next slide, brother. I just want to show you that all these things come from a long time ago. As witches, the wreath represents... The turning of the wheel of the year, an eternal circle, <sighs> turning through the darkness to the light. The circle wreaths and its candles are pre-Christian and actually an old pagan tradition that originated with the ancient Celtic people of Germany and Scandinavia. These people worship the rhythms of the earth with the sun being central in importance to them. 
During the winter solstice, the Celts prayed for the sun's return and the reassurance that spring was coming. The center of these rituals was a living wreath. The wreath was traditionally formed with evergreens. It symbolized the unending circle of life and rotation of the seasons. The evergreen was used as it's part of the earth that survives the winter's cold weather and darkness. Traditionally, candles were lit and set within the wreath, bringing light to the darkness. The ritual was done with candles and ceremonial fires. The wreath was displayed indoors, either hung like a, like a chandelier or on top of a table or altar. Later on in history, the tradition was modified to include hanging the wreath on walls and doors. Christmas wreaths and holly mistletoe. The wreath is a pagan symbol of eternity. The circular shape of the Christmas wreath represents life's never-ending circle and the interconnectedness of all things. Pagans believe wreaths protect from evil spirits and bring good luck. Traditionally, holly and mistletoe are also hung in homes at Christmas and are believed to have healing properties to the inhabitants. However, the Christian church banned this pagan tradition initially and later began claiming the Christmas wreath of holly represented that never-ending love of Christ. So they banned it at first, but then they accepted it and just changed the name of it. Mistletoe snuck back into the scene regardless of the ban at New Year's. Rather due to the mysterious Christmas superstition arising that it was bad luck during Christmas, the custom of kissing under the mistletoe comes from the Scandinavian goddess of love, Frigga, whose, plan, whose plant is mistletoe. Frigga is where we get the name Friday. The sun god is where we get the name Sunday. Saturn, the god Saturn, is where we get the name Saturday. Next slide. All these things have come down through history. Praise the Lord. And, okay, now we're gonna find now we're gonna take a look at this. Like where did this come from? The the Catholics inherit it with the Saint Nick. They said, Well, Saint Nick belongs to us. It was a saint that lived so and so back then and back here, but uh come to find out there's a little bit more to it than that. It is certainly an easier option for Santa, but folklore also plays a part in this tradition. Going back to pre-Christmas pagan lore, hearths were thought to be homes of gods or sprites immediately on the property of the household. A hearth is uh, in the fireplace. The bricks of the fireplace usually come out a little bit on the floor, and that's called a hearth. And they believe that sprites and fairies and stuff lived on them during the winter time, because of the gifts left on the hearth, it was symbolic of goodwill and prosperity. So they started putting gifts there at the bottom of the fireplace, and they believed that the little sprites and fairies came down the chimney and would come and get the gifts and bring them good luck and stuff. It's a Norse tradition, sees Odin climbing down chimneys or smoke holes on the solstice to mark the beginning of winter. According to Italian folklore, an Epiphany Eve on January 5th, an old woman known as Befana, a gift-giving witch, delivers gift to Italian children. Depicted as covered in soot, it is thought she makes her deliveries via the chimney. A chimney-based theme is starting to develop. 
Enter St. Nicholas. Father Christmas, a.k.a. Santa Claus, is thought to originate back to the real St. Nicholas, who was given his own feast day on December 6th. At around the same time, Pope Julius I wanted to attach a date to Jesus' birthday and decide to use a date around the pagan winter solstice festival, so he came up with December 25th. Eventually, St. Nicholas' feast day became associated with December 25th, and he took on the persona of the gift bearer for children. This date then tied with Odin's visit down the chimney, plus Bafana's in Italy, and slowly the story of Santa Claus coming down the chimney began to take hold. However, it was probably the famous poem written in 1920 or 1822 by Clement Moore that sealed the story of Father Christmas utilizing the chimney. Originally entitled entitled A Visit from St. Nicholas, it had grown in popularity under the title of The Night Before Christmas. The poem described how Santa and his sleigh land on the roof, allowing Santa to drop down the chimney with his bounty of gifts. And I can't read that one there, but it's talking about... Thank you, brother. In summary, it seems quite possible that the traditional image of Father Christmas described in Livingston's poem and universalized by the Coca-Cola company during the 1930s had its origins in the shamanistic rituals involving the red and white fly aggregate toadstool, from climbing into chimneys and gift-giving to dressing in red and white and flying through the air with reindeers. Travelers and storytellers have fused these ancient customs with other pagan traditions and imagery and is the want of Christianity. These pagan customs have pragmatically been adopted and integrated into our Christmas traditions. That's sad to say. Everything about it. There's nothing about it that's real. There's nothing about it that's original. There's nothing about it that it's... Well, wait a minute. I take that back. There is something about it in the Bible. Brother Anthony, the other slide. Next slide. Jeremiah 10, 1 through 6. Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot like a Christmas tree to me. They cut it down. They put the little wood blocks on the bottom of it so it stands up because it won't stand up anymore. They bring it in the house. They put the gold and the silver tinsel on it, and they decorate it. But you know what's funny about that? Jeremiah lived in 626 and 586 B.C., 800 years 
before the first Christmas was ever celebrated. So they were pulling Christmas trees in their house at that time. Probably weren't calling them Christmas trees. You know, who knows what they were called. But all these traditions, all these pagan rituals, all these things from the past, which have been drugged through, which have been reprocessed, repackaged, made new, new and improved, which have now become nothing but consumerism. And what does God say about them? Don't learn the ways of the heathen. It's like the word that we learned today from Brother Lorenzo. That's where, that's where we should focus. That's where we should. But I tell you what, try to tell somebody this. Hey, you know, do you really know? When, I'm, I'm going to share a sh- short story with you because I love this. Uh, pastor used to tell me, hey, you know what? You know what you do when somebody tells you Merry Christmas? You go, yeah, same to you, pal. <laughs> I love it. I love that because they have no idea where that came from, right? <laughs> they have no idea where that came from. And, and it, it's not until the thing, you get into the things of the Lord and you understand, you know what? Where did this come from? We just celebrate it because our mom and did, dad did it. They just do it because their mom and dad did it. But where did it really come from? What's really behind it? It's been packaged. It's been promoted. It's been remarketed. But it it's, it's comes from way, way back. And that is my story of Christmas. So, thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Amen. God bless Brother James and everybody for sitting in on it. Lo que vamos a hacer, hermanos, vamos a grabar toda la presentación, lo vamos a poner en español. Lo vamos a grabar para, porque es importante información que habló a muchas cosas que vas a ver que, que vino uh, antes de el, la iglesia católica, pero la iglesia católica uh, uh, comenzó a, 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 how do you say, unravel it. Uh, como introducirlo más. Uh, y, uh, so hay, hay mucha historia. God bless Brother James. He's great at the details. I know there's a lot of information, uh, like he was saying. The, the one that always got me was uh, how the, the Crusades, how the mother of Constantine came back and, and, you know, fell in love with the story. They fell in love with the story of Jesus. And so they found out how they could just incorporate it. And he, he, that was better, brother, I think, than the last time as far as the information you pre- presented with how he was trying to join everything and really um, be creative uh, in keeping traditions to not lose the motivation of his armies uh, and the people, too, that were so used to the traditions that were there. So, again, traditions. And, and what's beautiful is when God starts to remove those things and starts to give us a new direction, a new focus. Um, I, I will tell you this. Uh, we, we all have little kids. We all have people in our lives that are very special and are very influenced by a lot of things. Parents, be smart on that. Be smart on that. You know, if you got kids that are in school and stuff like that, be smart on that stuff. You know, we're, we're remember, this is not our home. You know, we're, we're passing through here, and we've got to be very smart on how we don't teach our kids to be ugly. And, and uh, uh, I, I remember Pastor always, Pastor and, and my mom always being wise during those things, you know. I would go back to school with gifts. I had gotten gifts. 
I didn't get them on Christmas. And it was always funny how, how my mom and dad would always go after when all the sales were happening. <laughs> so I got better gifts. But they didn't, they didn't want me to go through difficult things too. And let's be smart on that. You know, because our kids are very special. But, you know, I, I encourage you young kids to, to be smart on that stuff. Learn about it. So you, you can grow up and, and feel free from these things. But um, we, we care about everybody here. Uh, and, and we want to continue this and we want to continue this discussion because there's a lot more to be added to this. There's a lot of other traditions. There's a lot of other things that there's questions on. So we're going to continue doing these type of things, brothers and sisters. So as a church, we can continue to progress and get better and better, uh, and how we can present, uh, the gospel of Jesus. Uh, and also we want to have this as, as uh, material that you can have broken down, uh, and have more, uh, more and more scriptures too involved with it. Cause there's a lot of scriptures that brother, uh, James, um, could refer to, especially with a lot of the traditions, the other traditions that they were talking about. Why don't we all stand up brothers and sisters and we pray and thank you all for, um, for attending this. Just think those around us como, uh, como estaba diciendo, queremos hacer esto más, pero lo queremos preparar más, mejor, con más información, con, uh, información en inglés y en español. Uh, información que puedes llevar y pasar uh, y uh, a trabajar con tu familia. Amen. Uh, but let's pray, brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for this opportunity that you gave us today, Father. We do this for your glory, Jesus. We do this for the liberty that we can live in in the freedom, Lord, of not being bound to traditions of men. Father, we know that you have called us to be uh, a unique people. And we know that that's difficult in times like this where it's everywhere we go and it's the influence is there, Jesus. We ask that we're compassionate, Lord, to those that uh, things haven't been revealed to them, Lord, and we just continue to be prepared, Lord, and be ready to speak. To speak when you give us something to speak, Father, when we have an opportunity to. I ask, Father, that you continue to bless our brother James, Lord, and all the work that he put in on this, Lord. There's a lot of it, good information that the brother... Uh, gather, Lord, and we're grateful that you inspired him and you, and you spoke to him through this, Lord. We'll continue, Father, doing these things, Lord, because there's many questions, many questions. This is just the beginning of questions that people have that we want to get into, into the word, to the history of it. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that you've allowed this information still to be accessible, Father. But we do believe, Lord, that the time will come where more and more of this stuff will be removed, Father. And so we ask, Father, that you just continue to put it in our hearts, Lord, so we can trust in you and be guided by you, Jesus. Bless all my brothers and sisters here, the families here, those that watch, those that heard, Lord. And that, Father, that your, your protection and your love is with us, Lord, as you're guiding us through all these things, Jesus. We want to honor you and just um, continue to be blessed by you, Father. We ask this all in your precious and holy name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless everyone. God bless y'all, brothers and sisters.